Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Incapable of ridding myself of the dreadful suspicions, yet incapable of firmly believing him to be what I thought. But more than this, there came the new interest awakened in me by his story, and when, in the course of his story, he accidentally disclosed the fact that he had not lost his arm, all my suspicions vanished at once. We had got, as usual, upon politics, and were differing more than usual, because he gave greater prominence to his sympathy with the Red Republicans. He accused me of not being thoroughgoing, which I admitted. This he attributed to the fact of my giving a divided heart to politics, a condition natural enough at my age, and with my hopes. "'Well,' I said, laughing, "'you don't mean to take a lofty stand upon your few years' seniority. If my age renders it natural, does yours profoundly alter such a conviction?' "'My age, no. But you have the hopes of youth. I have none.' I am banished forever from the joys and sorrows of domestic life, and therefore, to live at all, must consecrate my soul to great abstractions in public affairs. But why banished, unless self-banished? Woman's love is impossible. You look incredulous. I do not allude to this, he said, taking up the empty sleeve, and by so doing sending a shiver through me. The loss of your arm, I said and my voice trembled slightly, for I felt that a crisis was at hand, although a misfortune to you would really be an advantage in gaining a woman's affections. Women are so romantic that their imaginations are so easily touched. Yes, he replied bitterly, but the trouble is that I have not lost my arm. I started. He spoke bitterly, yet calmly. I awaited his explanation in great suspense. To have lost my arm in battle, or even by an accident, would perhaps have lent me a charm in woman's eyes. But, as I said, my arm hangs by my side, withered, unpresentable. I breathed again. He continued in the same tone, and without noticing my looks. But it is not this which banishes me. Woman's love might be hoped for, had I far worse infirmities. The cause lies deeper. It lies in my history. A wall of granite has grown up between me and the sex. But, my dear fellow, do you, wounded, as I presume to guess, by some unworthy woman, extend the fault of one to the whole sex? Do you despair of finding another true, because a first was false? They are all false, he exclaimed with energy. Not perhaps all false from inherent viciousness, though many are that— but false because their inherent weakness renders them incapable of truth. Oh, I know the catalogue of their good qualities. They are often pitiful, self-devoting, generous. But they are so by fits and starts, just as they are cruel, remorseless, exacting by fits and starts. They have no constancy. They are too weak to be constant, even in evil." Their minds are all impressions, their actions are all the issue of immediate promptings. Swayed by the fleeting impulses of the hour, they have only one persistent, calculable motive on which reliance can always be placed. That motive is vanity. You are always sure of them there. 
It is from vanity they are good, from vanity they are evil, their devotion and their desertion equally vanity. I know them. To me they have disclosed the shallows of their natures. God, how I have suffered from them! A deep, low exclamation, half sob, half curse, closed his tirade. He remained silent for a few minutes, looking on the floor, then, suddenly turning his eyes upon me, said, "'Were you ever in Heidelberg?' "'Never.' "'I thought all your countrymen went there. Then you will never have heard anything of my story. Shall I tell you how my youth was blighted? Will you care to listen?' "'It would interest me much.' "'I had reached the age of seven-and-twenty, he began, without having once known even the vague stirrings of the passion of love.' I admired many women, and courted the admiration of them all, but I was as yet not only heart-whole, but, to use your Shakespeare's phrase, Cupid had not tapped me on the shoulder. This detail is not unimportant in my story. You may possibly have observed that, in those passionate natures which reserve their force, and do not fritter away their feelings in scattered flirtations or trivial love-affairs, there is a velocity and momentum— when the movement of passion is once excited, greatly transcending all that is ever felt by expansive and expressive natures. Slow to be moved, when they do move, it is with the whole mass of the heart. So it was with me. I purchased my immunity from earlier entanglements by the price of my whole life. I am not what I was. Between my past and present self there is a gulf. That gulf is dark, stormy, and profound. On the far side stands a youth of hope, energy, ambition, and unclouded happiness, with great capacities for loving. On this side, a blighted manhood, with no prospects but suffering and storm. He paused. With an effort he seemed to master the suggestions which crowded upon his memory, and continued his narrative in an equable tone. I had been for several weeks at Heidelberg. One of my intimate companions was Kestner, the architect, and one day he proposed to introduce me to his sister-in-law, Ottilie, of whom he had repeatedly spoken to me in terms of great affection and esteem. We went, and were most cordially received. Ottilie justified Kestner's praises, pretty, but not strikingly so, clever, but not obtrusively so, her soft dark eyes were frank and winning, her manner was gentle and retiring, with that dash of sentimentalism which seems native to all German girls, but without any of the ridiculous extravagance too often seen in them. I liked her all the more because I was perfectly at my ease with her, and this was rarely the case in my relations to young women. I don't enjoy their society. You leap at once to the conclusion that we fell in love— your conclusion is precipitate. Seeing her continually, I grew to admire and respect her, but the significant smiles, winks, and hints of friends, pointing unmistakably at a supposed understanding existing between us, only made me more seriously examine the state of my feelings, and assured me that I was not in love. It is true that I felt a serene pleasure in her society, and that, when away from her she occupied much of my thoughts. It is true that I often thought of her as a wife, 
and in these meditations she appeared as one eminently calculated to make a happy home. But it is no less true that, during a temporary absence of hers of a few weeks, I felt no sort of uneasiness, no yearning for her presence, no vacancy in my life. I knew, therefore, that it was not love which I felt. So much for my feelings. What of hers? They seemed very like my own. That she admired me and was pleased to be with me was certain. That she had a particle of fiery love for me I did not, could not believe. And it was probably this very sense of her calmness which kept my feelings quiet. For love is a flame which often can be kindled only by contact with flame. Certainly this is so in proud, reserved natures, which are chilled by any contact with temperature not higher than their own. On her return, however, from that absence I have mentioned, I was not a little fluttered by an obvious change in her manner, an impression which subsequent meetings only served to confirm. Although still very quiet, her manner had become more tender, and it had that delicious shyness which is the most exquisite of flatteries, as it is one of the most enchanting of graces. I saw her tremble slightly beneath my voice, and blush beneath my gaze. There was no mistaking these signs. It was clear that she loved me, and it was no less clear that I, taking fire at this discovery, was myself rapidly falling in love. I will not keep you from my story by idle reflections. Take another cigar. He rose and paced up and down the room in silence. End of Borgonef Part 2